All right, welcome to episode two of season two of Locomotive. My name is Bianca Velasquez, and here I have with me... We talked about establishing a intro <laughs> that we do each time. We did talk about doing that, yeah. I love to talk to you about doing things. It's like Parker my favorite Mortensen. thing. Yeah, okay, well, do, okay. On call, reporting for duty, ma'am. Mm. I appreciate your servitude. We're <laughs> off to a good start tonight. <laughs> well, we are off to a good start. We have Gus and Pono here. The boys, Pono is sheepishly, if not um, suspiciously, staring at us from the couch and the his pile of sheepish. blankets. It's a little lamb. We had a whole setup here, similar to last time, except last time we didn't have any lit candles. Um, That's true. We're into the fall season. We are very into the fall. We're drinking uh, apple cider with Fireball. Yeah. Fireball was the first liquor I ever had. And how'd that go? Threw up a lot. Yeah. I haven't had it in so long, though, so it's actually kind of a fun treat. Mine was the Malibu rum. Is that the name of the rum? With that white label, that Mm -hmm. white bottle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think they mixed it with Sprite. And it was just me and this other girl who was like, uh, a friend had passed away and um, she was like, well, are you finally going to drink now? And I was like, yeah. And so I went to her house <laughs> yeah. and I was an idiot. I was like 20 and she was like, well, I'm just going to get you drunk then. And I'm like, okay. And then she just <laughs> did you have fun? got me very drunk. I think I don't really Who remember. I remember being in a, waking up in a bathtub. Were you hungover? After ha- having thrown up like a lot. In a bathtub? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's she, bad. She, like, put me in the bathtub. It's just that's kinda... not a good place to be. You don't want to throw up in the bathtub. No, I didn't throw up in the bathtub. I was being, I was put in the bathtub. It was... Was she also 20? Yeah. Yeah, mm. I think it was just, like, okay. both of us being idiots. Yeah. But... I would take any excuse to drink at that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I've Weird introduction <laughs> to today's episode. No shade to that that person. Um, I appreciate the service that they provided, but um, I just it's just weird to think about because really you, neither here nor there. Yeah, I mean it's just like a whatever early twenty things, but it's just like whenever someone's like, "This is my first experience drinking," I'm just I think of mine, and it's just similar to everybody else's, but kind of a weird circumstance. I just remember beer pong. You're playing beer pong. Yeah. I played beer pong this last weekend. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Did you win? No, I didn't. Of course you didn't. No. <laughs> of course I didn't. <laughs> 30 years old. <laughs> you don't look like you'd be good at beer pong. Hell <laughs> no. Um, okay, well, today's episode <laughs> theme is... Beer pong. Beer pong. No, it is <laughs> our local art history. And again, every episode we have a theme... And we both kind of just go off and find our own stories and come together to tell each other. And I think this time you should go first. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, since last time I went first. That's true. Um, so have at. <clears throat> and again, be- before we dive in, I would just like to celebrate the song that our dear friend Audrey Lockie wrote for us for God this season. Her. It's very, very good it's very fun you think she's stopped listening already yeah no she's only waiting for us to mention her name and then just like well i don't need to hear anything else 
She probably listens to the jingle and then turns it off. And is just like, damn, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Knocked it out of the park. Yeah. And most, I hope that's the case for most people. They just listen to the to the episodes for her jingle. I hope that they listen to the jingle, shut it off, rate it five stars, and then go away for two weeks. Yeah, actually, pretty ideal. Yeah. Buy an ad. Yeah, also, <laughs> also that's that. I, the, the, the ideal situation. How much does an ad cost? Um, What's the package? I don't know. We haven't come across hasn't come up yet yeah we haven't we haven't um received inquiries for the good enough ad you know yeah not serious enough all the yeah we've had many inquiries oh yeah thousands they're pouring in but they're just not good enough for our platform yeah yeah sorry everyone Mm -hmm. so when we (laughs) (laughs) so for thinking about art history um, I mean, I think I mentioned part of this in the last episode, but like moving toward doing this this season, this format, I was thinking, okay, we're we're kind of leaning more into the culture side of things, but I don't want to completely abandon like the art and like visual art side mm-hmm. of things. So I proposed this idea because some of the things I was researching for Salt Lake lore um, sort of fell into this. So I'm going to be talking about the history of the art barn on Finch Lane, which. Um, is located up near the University of Utah, South Temple, and I think 1300 East? Yes. Like 11? It's between 11th and 13th uh, East. Yeah, you know, that's the kind of information I would expect me to have on hand. Um, but it, that feels like it's right. I'm going to confirm. Um, uh, because what is it now known as Finch Lane Gallery? And I guess still maybe colloquially known as the Art Barn. Um, well, it's on 54 Finch Lane, um, which is right off of, is it 1300? South University Street. God damn it. Um, well, you know. Um, yeah, it's off 1300, in between 1300 and um, like 100 South. So it's that Reservoir Park. I think a lot of people know that um, place or have been there at least once. Um, and I think it's interesting to talk about its history because we're coming up on, um, about a hundred years of it existing and it's has the first incarnation of that morphs into what we today know as Emoka, the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art, Mm. um, which is a huge... Wait a minute. So it, Art Barn was on, at Finch Lane. Mm-hmm. And, and then, it still is, you know. I think people still call it Art Barn. And then but, became you, you Mocha. Yes. Um, so this is what we'll get into, and uh, that's a great question. Thank you, You're Bianca. Full of them. Um, there's kind of three. I mean, there's lots of different ways that you could chop it up, but there's three kind of segments to the history of the Art Barn. So it starts out as the Art Barn on Finch Lane then eventually becomes a Salt Lake Arts Center, and then um, moves to uh, next to Robinall Hall. Well, you know, they, uh, again, we'll get into this, but the Bicentennial Arts Center project um, is what births Abravanel Hall and what we now know as Emoka, but that building was initially, it was initially called the Salt Lake Arts Center, and 
I didn't realize this, but it's only very quite recently that it became the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art, like a little bit before I moved to Salt Lake. So I, in my head, it just always was that, but actually mm. it was quite close to when I moved here that it changed that name. Wait a minute. So <laughs> Yumoka hasn't been Yumoka for a hundred years. No, but it but the organization that is Yumoka started at the art barn. And how long has Yumoka been Yumoka? Like ten years. Two thousand eleven. Wow, literally in two thousand twelve. Yeah, I moved here in two thousand eleven. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would have never known. So this was interesting for me because the fast one on me. I, Changing the name. <laughs> this information is readily available, and I will say that <laughs> I. Um, drew, I'm drawing all this information from the Yumoka website. They have a really wonderful article um, in their about section. Yeah, so this is, um, I'm drawing a lot from the Yumoka's website, which I was surprised that there is such a fully fleshed out history here that is just like not usually the sort of thing you see on a, you know, website. Uh, it's quite a long article and it was co-authored by Glenn Nelson and Maddie Blanquistrum. Um, doesn't say when it was published, but it seems like within the last, uh, around 2021 or so, because it uh, includes information on COVID. Mm. But yeah, so I'm going to be kind of going through the timeline starting in 1930, which we are rapidly, we are only seven years away from the 100 years wow. of this um, art institution in, in Salt Lake. And I guess a broad overview, I'd like to ask you, how would you describe Yumoka? The well, Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. They have... TM. They're okay, so you walk in and they have their first off. Where is it now? It's next to Salt Palace, right? <laughs> Where's that? Give me I don't know. Address. I think it's West Temple. <laughs> I mean, I and... do. It's yeah, it's West Temple and Third West. It is Third West because I remember when I applied for a job at Umoka, it's I walked. Either, do you mean Third South? No, West. Third West and West it's Temple, Third West and West. Those those are different streets. They can't. Be yes, they intersect. West Temple and Third West. Yeah, they, they both run west. <laughs> what street did I live on? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that would be like saying it's on Second South and it's also on Third South. You know? No, it's like it's on South Temple and it's on Third South. Why don't we look it up? <laughs> We're both very. We both worked like twelve hours. Yeah, it's been a long day. It's been a long day. Twenty Southwest Temple, (laughs) which still doesn't answer my question. Um, It's off South Temple, (laughs) and it's off. Yeah, it's off South Temple, and it's it's on on West Temple. So it's like on the corner of South and West Temple. It's across from City Creek Mall. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. right off of one of the fun little stops, the track stops. Yeah, there's a track right stop at South Temple. So, actually, I used to have a film photography class behind Yumoka that I totally failed uh, twice. <laughs> and twice. so I used to always Shame. park in front of Yumoka because. Uh, Did you pay for you, parking? No, of course not. You know how I am with that, and and so and especially question. then I was super broke, so I I got enough parking tickets from parking in front of Yumoka that I had to concoct a, a scheme in order to get free parking. So I would park in the City Creek indoor parking lot. They have some free parking. N- not that, not back in like 2013. Really? Okay. You'd go in, I'd go in and they used to scan a barcode. Like your little ticket would have a barcode. So yeah. I'd go in, go to class, walk across the street to go to class and then go back and then 
fuck up the barcode so that it wasn't you weren't able to scan it and so you'd be like oh gosh it's look not at me. working I, you're gonna have and to then they let just me let pay. me out that worked yeah every time every single time <laughs> they weren't like it's this girl again with I the conspicuously it's... effed up barcode i it worked was it the same person every time? No, I think it's just like an automated system. It's just like, oh, it's not working. And like you try enough times. Oh, I see. That it just lets you out. So there wasn't like a parking attendant. No, no, there was like no one wow. there. Oh, yeah. all right. This isn't. This is blown sorry, past sorry. interesting. Okay, so you're asking. Talking me. about your fucking parking <laughs> ticket scam. <that> you <laughs> You asked me how would I describe Mocha? So you walk in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean about myself. Um, you walk in and there's the gift shop, which is always really great. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> and they ask you to either donate or you know you can go in for free, but there's a suggestion donation of I think seven dollars. This isn't really what I was. <laughs> okay. Well, there's okay. So the thing that stands like, out the most to me is like the big empty. <laughs> big empty. What? But you can – okay, from what I was going to describe was that that top floor that you enter, it's mm -hmm. kind of um, surrounding the big main space as like – I don't know. You're like looking into the big main space yeah, through glass windows. Up, above and down. Yeah, up above and down really into fun. it. You know, like a little preview of and what you're doing. You, you, it looks like see. a maze from the top because there's the walls put up, right, for, for the exhibitions and stuff. And then there's this hidden room in the back for – like other exhibitions it's not hidden but it's just the kind of air yeah gallery artist in residence gallery okay yeah the artist in residence gallery mm -hmm. so there's that and then um i was sort of looking for like how would you describe the what do you want <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to describe it in many different ways you know what you keep going yeah okay so then um the top floor though that you're watching from um and you're looking down on uh, that one is more of like an open call community space, I think. Uh, they usually have like guest curators for those spots. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I can't really speak. And there's more there's to... a theater in there too. Yeah, there is. So they've got um, yeah that gift shop, and they've got a, a very large exhibit room. Um, and they've got like two other galleries, like winged galleries, and they have like the artist in residence where they do stuff where they show from their artist in residence. I guess are you um, asking me like kind of what the vibe is comparatively, like of the shows, like what oh. sort of art have you seen there? Well, really I mean, I it's in the name all the contemporary work that they have, yeah, and they have their is. annual shows and their annual fundraisers and all that regular programming. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean. I've seen them have, I guess you could say, more controversial work as opposed to UMFA. Yeah. And I think that's probably... in fine art. Yeah, probably because of the affiliation with the university and it's it's government funded. And UMOCA, on the other hand, is a 501c3. So I guess th that they do have to have some restrictions with the content that they provide or work that they display. But they are behold beholden to grants, so... I am coming from a brain of not vibes, but more like logistics right now. Cause, sure. Because uh, you're working on that kind of thing. Kind of I'm working on that kind of thing right now with opening up yeah. the gallery. But yeah, I mean, let me ask, how would you describe Yumoka? Yeah, I would describe it as 
contemporary art. I feel like we've seen exhibitions there that are, um, I don't know, because I, I guess my experience of art galleries that I have been to in Utah, it's, UMFA definitely has like more of a historical curation bent to it mm -hmm. where they will like, you know, they've got like a collection. Mm -hmm. I don't know if UMOCA has a collection. I'm not intending this episode to be like about well, UMOCA. Let's compare. Yeah, about, let's not, I'm not trying to compare, nor am I trying to, uh, like I don't, I'm not up to date with their current offering. They also, U UMFA also has a fine art collection too. UMFA or UMOCA? UMFA. I would hope they have a fine art collection. That, well, and I think that, well, that's what I'm saying. It's like they are a place for, they're, they're rooted in education. I think they just have, they, they fundamentally need to have like range for the students. Where UMOCA isn't appealing, it's not posturing, not posturing, um, it's not curating for the students, it's curating for the sake of um, conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so what I'm realizing very quickly here is that we're getting into, like, I don't, I'm not trying to represent uh, uh, Yonoka yeah. or, like, yeah. even have a conversation Get about back it. into your little history. Part, <laughs> part past, past any of this, I was just trying to establish sort of, like, what is your experiential perception mm -hmm. of it? Because um, I think that all that stuff is, like, interesting, um, but we probably need someone there from Yumoka to talk to about any yeah. of this because I don't feel like either of us are in a position to be like, this is what Yumoka's mission is to try yeah. and do. Um, but, uh, I think it's fair to say that it's like, not necessarily controversial, but like contemporary art just sort of includes things that are probably going to like have the potential to be controversial because they're of the now, you know, mm -hmm. stuff that maybe you find offensive or, or, uh, not offensive necessarily, but just like uncomfortable, uncomfortable. Yeah. Maybe th that affects you in some way, um, that maybe you'd categorize as negative, if it's from the past, it's like, well, it's from the past, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, who cares? But if it's from now, then it's like, well, we can do something about it now. So with all that being said, all that outrageous preamble, I'm going to go through um, from 1930 up to the current moment. Um, just as, and part, I guess I didn't say this before, but part of why I found this interesting to do is because there's a lot of little bits of Salt Lake things about our city that its history also touches. So let's dive in. Um, in 1930, Alta Rollins Jensen and other arts enthusiasts organized support for Art Center, for an art center, eventually known as the Art Barn in Salt Lake City. Um, and the Salt Lake Telegram announces that Salt Lake will soon have a miniature Greenwich Village and Bohemian Art Center to be used as a rendezvous for artists, authors, poets, sculptures, and musicians. So um, I looked into who this Alta Rollins Jensen is, and she was just kind of like an art enthusiast. She was like into art. Um, she was born in 1884, and she had participated. Um, in th this thing called Carmel by the Sea Artist Colony on the California coast, which is like 120 miles south of San Francisco near Monterey Bay. Um, and it was like a bohemian gathering place that was home to artists and writers and intellectuals. Um, and it drew a bunch of, you know, very uh, people you would know from like uh, 20th century American art making. So like uh, Jack London, Upton Sinclair, William Merritt, um, so there's architects, dancers, playwrights, there's like all these kind of people. Um, and she's like, well, why can't we have this? In 1930, she had an epiphany and she wrote, 
Discontented with Salt Lake City after a winter spent in Carmel by the sea, that California mecca of artists and writers, the thought stirred in a woman's <laughs> mind as she sat down in her garden, who happened to be myself. Girl goes to California and then comes back to Utah. <laughs> Disappointed. Yeah, I know. It's like so classic. <laughs> what a, what a tr- Yeah. I know that story. That's another thing about this history <laughs> is that there's a lot of moments that I recognize mm. from like our contemporary, our contemporary moment. Um, so it's it, it's instructive. Uh, so she, she says, this happens to be me who has this thought. And I think, why can't we have a similar source of inspiration here? Why can't we gather our artists and writers here too? All together in some central place. Um, so this is kind of um, aligns with what was happening kind of around the country. So first two decades of 20th century, there's art colonies along the country. Um frequently in places that are kind of away from urban centers. So um, some examples of that, that I am not McDowell, Provincetown, Woodstock, Yaddo, Taos, um, just, you know, places like what she's describing where people are just coming together. Yeah. Um, and then you've got 1929, you've got the great depression and then all of a sudden traveling to these places that are like kind of away from these urban areas becomes prohibitive. People are like, I can't do that. That's not, yeah. I, who has the time, who has the money? Um, so it becomes eventually suggested that, like, why don't we have this here? This seems like a moment to do this. And there's some public pushback on it because people are like, well, we're in the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And it seems like we'd be spending yeah. our money on other things than yeah. building an art barn. When isn't that the case, you know? Right. I mean, <laughs> people people are, like, kind of having a reaction to it. So uh, there was, like, some public contention about whether it was a good time to build something like that. Um, but a lot of prominent community members got behind it. Um, art makers in the area. Um, one of the like organists, um, or, uh, like a popular organist was like, Oh, come on, we can have music over there. It's going to be rad. And then eventually the governor gets behind it and the city decides like, okay, we're going to, um, and one of the arguments that Rollins makes, um, or J- Jensen makes is that like, this is going to put a lot of people to work. Mm, um, so it's okay. going to be a benefit for the community one way or the other. Yeah. Um, so did it start as a nonprofit? Yes, it did. Okay, I'm so... glad you asked. Um, so let's see. Um, so they set aside a ten thousand dollar budget for the construction, and which in twenty twenty ish money is about one hundred fifty thousand. Um, That's still not bad. Yeah, honestly, um, but it's pretty meager, you know. Obviously, to start off with, but. Um, so they get into it, and then it's like they're getting close, and the the reality of the economy threatened to halt their progress until, quote, an 11th hour donation from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints provided oh. for a roof on the building and for windows, rendering the structure usable. God Although literally blessed. Very cold in the absence of any kind of heater. So very early on, you know, this is a couple of things. I think it, like, shows, obviously, the influence of the Mormon church, um, not just from, like, a cultural standpoint, but from, like, a money. Like, they've, they're like, we've got money to do this, like, mm-hmm. even in 1931. But how much did that dictate the... It doesn't seem to have. Um, oh, that's good. Not in the, not in this instance. I'm ready to be upset. Yeah, no, I, I kind of was too. Um, and and they had some creative ways of raising money. Um, they they sold. Uh, so a few months after that, they sold tickets to a debate, which they actually just held at Kingsbury Hall, um, which is up the street, on the topic of the repeal of bro- prohibition, and that kind of secured it its place as a forum. And this for is when it's dialogue. located by the university. 
What's that? Yeah. So yeah, this Finch is Lane. all when it's up on Finch Lane. Okay. Um, so I thought that was kind of funny that they're arguing about prohibition, um, and uh, Rollins. And they're making money off of this argument. Well, they sold tickets. tickets yeah. The, yeah. So the art barn like puts on puts this on. They host it at Kingsbury Hall because they're trying to finish the art barn, um, and or you know just have more money uh, because it, it wasn't named anything at that point. Um, but Rollins Jensen wrote after this, the money rolled in. <laughs> so successful, I suppose. Oh, cool contention yields profit Mm -hmm. yeah honestly i wonder i wonder if that wasn't like an early takeaway um so the art barn is officially incorporated in 1931 and then the first summer courses that they offer are in 1932 and then it officially is opened by governor henry h blood um on (laughs) june 11th 1933 how is blood spelled like you'd think wow did you sneak in like a bunch of halloween names to get us in the mood Kind of like a yeah, treehouse of horror. The first artist they showed off, his name was um, Count Von Dracula. <laughs> um, the, the, uh, the flyer for the And formal... Barry D. Alive. <laughs> <laughs> the flyer for the formal opening said, this art center belongs to you. So um, very early on, kind of a community space um, being used in, in way, in, in, like you said, for sort of like little moments of contention. Um, so... Um, there's a lot of significant moments in the, those early years, and I think that's kind of the most interesting period to me. So they held, holds its first gala in 1934. Um, the School of Fine Arts is established in, in 1935. That gala has been going every year since. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's a lot of traditions that have been upheld. Um, so then some stuff happens, and we're going to move forward a bit to – about um, 1945 or 1946, 1945, um, kind of like the 40s era. So um, Rollins Jensen uh, writes that the art barn is Utah's Louvre, which is kind of hyperbolic. Um, but that's to say that it, like it did really well in its first two decades. Um, so two features are especially prominent. Um, they write here that. First, the local artists had a home where they could exhibit their work proudly at an independent institution. And second, traveling expo- exhibitions brought work to Utah that many had never seen before. Um, mm. So there was that idea of like Greenwich Village that they brought up in pitching it where they were like, we want it. We want this to be like the Bohemian Art Center. We want it to be a place that is challenging. That was kind of there from the inception mm. um, or, or is a place for people who you know are like free spirits or whatnot. Um, that... Uh, that phrasing kind of that came from the Salt Lake Telegram, which interestingly, um, I looked into what the Salt Lake Telegram is. Um, it was the evening edition of the Salt Lake Tribune. Ooh, <clears throat> um, and it Salt was, Lake Tribune at night. Mm-hmm, after hours, <laughs> it was sold in 1914 by um, the Tribune, and then they reacquired it in 1930. And then it was phased out when the joint operating agreement was formed with the um, Deseret News, uh, which is owned by the Ellis Church. Hmm. So, um, let's see. Um, as you had mentioned, uh, independent, um, and that was true financially. So a big gamble at the time, independently funded and self-supporting consequence of that is free to do what it wanted. It could be isolated from the undulating whims of institutional policy. They write. Um, so there was the ability to be a little bit more challenging. Um, there were classes and gatherings, which kind of made it feel like a community owned space, um, and, uh, but, but a big thing of what they did early on was expose people to like current fine art movements. It wasn't really about 
contemporary art in the sense of like um we want to show people what's happening now but it was like we want to expose people to the things that are happening elsewhere because they're just you know there wasn't any way to see it if it wasn't coming to you physically then there wouldn't have been a way to do it um so they they wanted to show that art and then kind of engage people in conversations about that art um and notably in the third year of operation they displayed some works by a franz braz which who was president of the california watercolor society and it was a watercolor show but it did include a painting of two nudes mm. and they had displayed its first the f- first nudes to limited criticism the previous year but this image created in a, like a more modernist style brought out larger protests along the local community people were actually upset about this um and the board had a decision to make how do they respond to this this um, still happens today. Yeah, like, so there, there is a, I believe this is a Telegram um, article that says, Art burn, no prude, says nude, not lewd. Oh, wow, brilliant. Yeah. I uh-huh. love that. And then the deck is, um, lovely lady, parentheses in oils, <laughs> hangs in gallery after art lovers decide petticoats unnecessary. Um, I actually really love this article. Uh, <laughs> and it starts out with saying, when is nude art lewd? Like, this guy was having a good time. Um, But basically, they have kind of a heated debate, uh, 150 club women and other art lovers over nudes and their place in public galleries. And they land on, well, it's okay to show as long as it's beautiful. And then people, then that leads them into an argument of, well, okay, but what's beautiful? Um, And so it becomes like this kind of sort of art existential debate. Mm -hmm. Um, which again, a conversation we're still having today. Yeah, that kind of, it's funny. We're sort of in a puritanical moment culturally, so it, it's funny to think about. Uh, and this article, again, interestingly written, um, it says the group also gave itself over to a discussion of modernistic art, and it was explained that the devices regarded as grotesque by the average layman are merely means to focus intention, attention on interpretive features of a picture or piece of sculpture, which seems to mean to me that these translate please <laughs> means that they're saying like oh you know the, this is off-putting or weird to you it's just that's what's making you think about it man like this mm-hmm. is that's what's you weren't talking about it before well now you're talking about it um so uh i love that i mean it just proves that the function of art has not changed through decades and decades and decades of trying to have human development through what the challenges that art puts forth. Alta Jensen, who was um, like a spiritual is described as a spiritual and administrative leader for the art center. I'm not sure what that spiritual leader means, but um, she said, (laughs) I think we should settle the question for all time. It is a time to find out if Utah is a bit of a backwash remote from the main current in progress or if culture here has grown to maturity where truth and beauty can be seen in the nude as well as in the other art. We will never develop any art that is real or great in Utah until art can be anything it wants to be. That's beautiful. It it is. When was this, when did this happen? This this, moment? This this specific is like, I think 1933 or sorry, 1937. It's like three years into this happen into the art barn. So like, what I thought was interesting about this is there's already, even at that time, kind of this, like, sense that Utah is a bit of a backwash. Like, oh, it's, a, it's a little conservative here. Like, it's a little stodgy, yeah. you know? The, the stick is up the ass. Yeah. And I guess I hadn't, 
no sense of like when that perception became something. And maybe, you know, this is, that's a lot maybe to hang on, on this one quote, but um, it does seem to point to that perception. Mm. Um, and Rollins Jensen uh, was quoted as saying, she did not even like the picture. <laughs> she thought it was ugly, but she hung it because she wanted to see if art could be nude in Utah. Mm. So it did seem like this very intent, in, uh, intentionally provocative moment early on. Um, all right. Let's see. So not, uh, so the more time goes by. Um, they, uh, you know, new board of directors are appointed, new directors, um, a new director is appointed time and time again. Um, there's kind of more of a special emphasis paced, uh, put upon, um, contemporary interest just sort of lightly and slowly. Um, in 1953, they kind of un- start to understand that, like, we might need a bigger place. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot going on here. Um, Do you know anything about the square footage of what it was originally? No, I don't know. I would love to know. It is eventually remodeled um, because during during the war, the activities of the barn slowed down. Um, Which war? The World War II. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, there's just so many. Right, but it's all <laughs> happened after World War One. Um, <laughs> so... Um, they, but they, they kept it going. Um, and in 1958, they, uh, to, to further clarify the mission, um, they, and also just because they feel like the name Art Barn just sort of like really conjures a very specific image, they changed their name to the Salt Lake Art Center. Um, and I, what I thought was another notable event was in 1961, James Lewis Hasseltine is hired as the first paid and professionally trained director of the Salt Lake Arts Center. So it's all kind of volunteer before that, um, which again, I think kind of shows the role of art um, in our community at least, and people viewing it as like, this is something someone should be paid to be doing. Um, And he's an interesting guy because he's like, I don't want to do this like traveling art show exhibit thing. Like before this, um, as far as I understand it, um, what was happening was people were... Um, coming to the art barn and saying like, Hey, we've got this exhibition. We want to show this to you. Like we've got these pieces. Would you be interested? Essentially it's a venue. Yeah. It was less being curated by people. I mean, I'm sure people were saying yes or no, but there was less of like an authorial body within it who was saying like, yes to that. No to that. Yes to that. Mm -hmm. Um, No curated exhibition specifically. Yeah. Not in the way that I think that we would think of them. And again, this is all a bit, um, Oh, so this is all a bit cursory on my part. You know, there's a lot that uh, there's a lot of documentation here um, that I can't get into completely. I don't have all the facts in front of me, but um, that's my perception. Um, So there's less, um, there's less of that traveling art show thing and more apparent in its arts exhibition. Like the fifties represent a shift in the curatorial approach. Um, So, in this like fifties period or by the sixties, the number of regional artists who had done like one person exhibitions declined a lot dramatically. Um, and, uh, in 1958, that's when they changed to the Salt Lake art center. And he becomes more interested in specifically showing off like local art, people from mm-hmm. Salt Lake city. Um, I'm curious, like kind of what the, you know, uh, the, the, the changes of that the 60s brought 
into society, if how that affected, like, did those waves in art affect, um, did that hit Utah at all? Did that hit Utah's art scene at all? I don't know. Um, my like, perception did... based on this history is that it felt, a, it seemed like Utah was a bit insulated from those movements, at least in like these institutional ways. I'm curious what, like, did they have exhibitions about the civil rights movements happening? And I didn't see anything. Like, how much did they speak up about? Well, how much were they part of that conversation? Yeah. Because they're certainly part of it now. Yeah. I, I think that's interesting because it's like, that's hard... I don't know. I guess we do do more of that now of, of kind of like responding to our current, I mean, I guess that's what the that's contemporary, what contemporary art, art is. is. Yeah. But I, I guess that's kind of what we're getting at is that like the, they've, they've been doing contemporary art the entire time, but I, I don't know that it was quite so. Um, and honestly, I would love to talk to someone, <laughs> an actual yeah. historian about this, but it wasn't quite so intentionally self-reflective. Is the, is the vibe that Interesting. I get? Like, it's contemporary in the sense that it's of the now, but it's not necessarily like, hey, here's a photograph of protests, you know, like mm-hmm. we um, might have an exhibit on. But I feel like that, I mean, obviously what was happening in the 60s and, and 70s and, you know, honestly throughout all of history, it's like it's so potent that how could that not penetrate a place of conversation? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't see anything about that in this particular history, but. I don't know. Maybe this. I, be I something... mean, maybe something in the archives. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there. I, I guess this is a little bit less focused on the specific exhibits than it is. Mm-hmm. Um, this inquiry is meant to be less specific, uh, focused on the exhibits than it is like um, the progression of the relationship to art. Which I guess your question falls. Well, under. and it, and it's just kind of the same thing as like bringing in nudity. Like mm-hmm. if that was so impactful, what would I mean? If that was just so taboo that there needed to be some conversation around it in order to justify the display of, I can't imagine what work by like people of color that were controversial quote unquote at the time, um, not the people that work. Yeah. Um, how that would have, you know, been met. Yeah. I don't know. And responded. I think generally to. people seem to get upset more over sex than violence. Mm. Um, but Yeah. Oh, I would love to know the answer to that as well. And maybe some of the things that I'm going to say will shed some light on that because, um, so with this Hasseltine guy, um, so prior to him, you could kind of describe the art barn as a place that emphasized relationships with like California arts, you know, going off of what Jensen originally was into. She's like, I want it to be like California, um, and showcasing local and regional artists. We got to stop trying to make Utah like California. It's embarrassing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, but I mean, obviously this led to wonderful things, so maybe not, but Um, another thing that they started to do was like actually have a scholarly catalog to accompany their exhibits, which created more of a record, Mm. um, and kind of brought a different sort of value to the way that art was, was happening. Um, so uh, for instance, in 1965, they did a hundred years of, pa- of Utah painting exhibition with a, with a catalog. Um, and it's like a huge full scale survey, um, of Utah painting from the earliest pioneer days to the, to the recent past. So it's a little bit more of like, almost like a museum thing. Like you see much more of a curatorial hand. Mm. Um, 
So uh, Hasseltine is embracing uh, contemporary art uh, and kind of an evolving definition of it. And as the museum grows, um, they need to, they're like, we need a new building. Um, how are we going to do this? And so then there's the idea of like, how's this going to be funded? People start, because public money starts getting involved, people start having opinions on like, well, should we be building this sort of thing? And then that leads to them having opinions on public art, or not public art, but just like contemporary art itself. Like there's an invigoration of opinion about art because it's like a funding issue, mm-hmm. a fiscal issue. So people are like, well, I don't think that we should spend money on this because I don't think that art's any good. <clears throat> so... um uh, in 1967, they unveil a scale model of a proposed building design on Finch Lane Gallery space, and that's never actually actualized, um, but they do foreshadow the um, building to come. Also, another fun fact I thought was in 1969, um, they have the first annual Discovery Arts Festival, which is a predecessor to the Utah Arts Festival, um, in the courtyard of, of what is at that point the Salt Lake Arts Center, and it's sp- sponsored by the Salt Lake Arts Center Guild. And also, the Twilight Concert Series is launched in the courtyard, 1969. 1969, the Twilight Concert Series? Oh, mm-hmm. what was that lineup? I don't know. Wow, we should, let's see if we can find that out. That's actually... Wow. And who put on the Twilight Concert Series originally? It was the city, right? I think it's the Arts Council, it seems like. Wow. You know, since since then. Now proudly owned by SNS, Sartain, and Saunders. It's in it's in partnership. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm sorry. I don't have that information, even though that obviously that's something I would love to know. Yeah, um, we'll have to look that up. Oh wow, that's incredible! So, wow, Twilight Concert Series actually the the genesis of it happened at what we now know as Yumoka. Yeah, mm-hmm. but not that location, the Finchley yeah. location, mm-hmm. and that courtyard where like the park is and the tennis courts are wow yeah so this is what i'm saying right like there's that's a lot amazing. of little salt lake fixtures i think yeah. that was the word i was looking for earlier like things in our community that we're used to knowing but like they kind of all sort of emanate from pillars of our community pillars oh my gosh yeah there it was so in 1974 um, there's a proposed bicentennial arts complex project which is what we know as a Bravenel hall in Yumoka. Um, to be built downtown, and it's funded entirely by Salt Lake County and the Utah State Legislature. I believe they go 50-50 each on it, um, just to, to build it, and then like furnishing it and everything inside is done by um, the the SLAC, Salt Lake Arts Council. Um, so that gets built, and um, in 1979, the Salt Lake Arts Center opens its doors at its new 7,500-square-foot facility downtown, and has way more accommodations, as we said earlier. There's uh, they have an art school. They have a really large exhibition gallery. There's retail sales going on. There's that auditorium. Um, so at that point, that is when they turn over the Finch Lane building to the Salt Lake City Arts Council, or Salt Lake City Council, sorry, for the arts, and they run and manage that, which is what they continue to do today. So um, they are separate, um, but you know that was like a handoff. They were like, yeah, you can have it. Um, so then we get into the '80s um, and. Uh, we get the first female director in 1989. Um, and she's kind of interesting because she led efforts to redefine the mission of the organization. This is where we get a bit more into like the contemporary art part of it. And she defines it as, uh, she defines contemporary art as that which responds to the conditions and concerns of modern life and which discovers and defines new forms. 1989. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. First female director. What was her name? Uh, Allison South. Okay. And for how long did she direct 
92. Three years. Hmm. And then Two I years. was born. Mm-hmm. And then this becomes all about you. <laughs> um, but uh, she... Um, yeah, from what I could see, like, it wasn't uncommon for people to have, like, a stint that long. Um, there's been a lot of directors over the years. Um, so, yeah, she's thinking about contemporary art. She says, we wish to be an institution which encourages artists to experiment. Um, so, kind of, you know, gave them a mission. It couldn't be everything to everyone. It's decades of experience and successes were leading it to fully embrace the ideas, issues, and people living in the present. Um, so, and, and then, so they're in that new space. 1981, they, um commission column 24 which is that big column in the courtyard kind of yeah. in between Ravenel and and Yumoka um and then through the 80s I guess the biggest thing that I noticed there was that they get a lot of philanthropic help that is mm. kind of the time when um, they get a lot of uh foundations start coming in and endowments start happening um and that is sort of influencing it, but I think curatorially they're still independent. It's not like it's being uh, influenced too much. Um, they've got a lot of catalogs happening. And then, yeah, we start to get into 1992. Um, in, that's when there's a big renovation to the facade of the building, which is kind of getting a lot closer to what we know it as now. Um, and then into the 2000s, we're sort of, so right now we're in uh, kind of the end of the second period because I would say the first period seems to be like the art barn. It's at Finch Lane. It's, it is in this little building. Um, and then they change their name to the Salt Lake Art Center. And that I think is the, the second, uh, the first shift. And then that continues for a long time from encompassing that as them moving locations. And then eventually in 2011, they changed their name to the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. Um, and they're like, we hope the change will be of major significance and provide greater transparency to the general public about exactly what kind of experience they can expect if they walk through our doors. Um, and this is kind of the last thing I thought was really interesting because um, what they write about in this, uh, this article is that art's becoming commonplace at this point. Like, it's 2011, it's the 2000s, it's the 21st century. Yeah. And even into the late 20th, 20th century, easy to see in one way or another recreations or just travel obviously much different to 1931 1930 um to just go see art like you know you can physically go and see it and so there's less of this need to be like you know we've already kind of moved away from like these traveling exhibitions but um even then uh even with um showing stuff from around uh, from people who are local it's like um, even if you're doing that, you've really got to um, have, like, a really strong angle, a really strong mission in order to be showing stuff to people. Because, like, what what do they want to see? Um, so what does it mean to organize a successful exhibition of art in Utah once visitors to the museum could compare it to their own firsthand experiences seeing art elsewhere? It's just becoming more pervasive. Um, it's not quite so novel. Um, so Adam Price, who was one of the directors... Um, he said, over the f first year I was working here, when I was talking to people, there was confusion about what the art center offered. It ranges from it, institutions like this that are indistinguishable from museums to a place for community art classes. It's a matter of the name catching up to the evolving role of the institution. And so, like, this is something that's happening around the country, too, with art generally. So museums around the country and major cities are undergoing similar name changes. Um, so you've got the Los Angeles Museum of Contemporary Art, the San Francisco Museum of Contemporary of, of Modern Art, excuse me. Um, well, even the term MOCA is mm -hmm. like a universal. It's like there are MOCAs in each state. Yeah. Museum of Contemporary Art. Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver. 
so they're all making these strategic moves and so it's not even you know that crazy um so uh one of the notable um exhibitions from this time is in 2011 um with the support of adam price uh who's the director at the time they do um, an exhibition called lawn gnomes your hearts out exhibition which was a juried competition and public art project which invited local artists to display lawn sculptures in front mm-hmm. yard galleries all over salt lake city on the wasatch Love this front exhibit. yeah um, and it was not the first time the museum had ventured outside its own walls um during the summer of 1974 21 utah artists were given the blank canvases in the form of advertising billboards across salt lake allowing viewers to cruise through it was essentially a citywide gallery a museum without walls so you know this kind of stuff is happening but i bring Plaka-esque. up the lawn gnomes what that's Placat-esque. Yeah. Yeah, I've, uh, yes, I was hoping you'd say that. Um, but the Lawn Gnomes exhibit gets revived in 2020 during the pandemic, which you mm-hmm. asked me to write about when we were working at Slug. I did? Yeah. Oh, so did you a, write about it? I did. Yeah. So that's a little tie-in. Mm. And I guess the most recent history is that in 2019, Laura Allred Hurtado was named the director, yeah. and she is the director still. Um, four years later so that's a that's a little history um about utah galleries and like i said i think it's kind of touches on some salt lake fixtures it sort of speaks to like the way contemporary art was uh, like the notion of contemporary art or just like um galleries in general are being treated over the last century so i hope you enjoyed that i love that wow do you have any other questions i wish it's the kind of thing where like there's just so much to know. There's um, so much. I, yeah. I did, you know, like a couple hours of research and preparation and I, I would do, I could do like 10 or 20. I could do this, you know, there's so much more because it, it splays out into so many little aspects of culture, um, of Salt Lake and also just like widespread, uh, access and appreciation of art. Like, I, I really bit off more than I can chew for sure, but um, I hope that yeah, because I think you were planning to do just like a broader history of art in Salt Lake City as far of, as of like art galleries, institutions, yeah. and, and galleries. And then I saw that there was this really fleshed out repository of knowledge about the history of Emoka specifically, and I was like, well, I, I would really love to present this information as and as a place where you know a lot of people that I work with and collaborate with have had exhibitions there. And place where I've booked so many stories to be written about from there. Like, it, yeah, they it's... do really. Right now, they've got a exhibit on Tatao, the history of like tattooing. Yeah, I am just. It's kind of heartwarming to understand that their mission and who they've been and what they've stood for has been consistent throughout the last century. Yeah, that you know the the like I said the um, title of this article that I'm. Um, based on a lot of this on is contemporary since 1931. So they really have been embracing this in one way or another. Um, and I skipped over so many things. There's so many little notable moments. Um, like the, that nude painting is like one of many things that uh, occurred. Um, so yeah, there's, there's so, there's so much. And if someone from Yumoka is listening and is like, Jesus Christ, that was <laughs> so much of that was incorrect, wrong, off base. Um, you know, let me know. I would really love to have someone kind of come and speak to this history more. Um, this is probably one of those where it's like, it would have been nice to do an interview for this one, but like, I really enjoyed reading all this and like, the more I read about it, the more excited I was to talk about it. So that's perfect. Yeah. Should we take a break? Yeah, let's take a little break. (laughs) Today I will be talking about the Salt Lake City Pepper Mural. 
pepper mural. Mm-hmm. SLC salt pepper, pepper mural in downtown Salt Lake City on 250 South 400 West. Notice how I wrote the address down. You wrote it down or yeah. you Googled it? Well, I wrote it down after Googling it okay. in the middle of recording. Yeah. Well, yours is a mural. Yours is a building. <laughs> the mural exists on a building. Yeah. Okay. Well, this mural was created in 2004 by artist Jan Haworth. This mural is about 50. Jan? Jan. Jan. Two N's. Harworth. How I keep wanting to say Hartworth, but that's not the name. That's Havarti. Haworth. Haworth. Uh, the mural is about 50 feet long and 50, 30 feet wide. Having existed in a popular spot in SLC, it is holding up pretty well after 20 years or so. Yeah. So you told me you were doing this, and I was like, oh, that's great, because I have looked at this. It's uh, across from... Um, the Rose Establishment. Let me finish. <laughs> the Rose Establishment from Pierpont. So, like, a place that I I think a lot that's of where people... That's Slug was. Yeah, a place I think a lot of Salt Lake people are familiar with and have seen. And when I, I've always seen it and just, like, took it at face value. I was like, oh, cool. Cool mural, bro. So I'd love to know the history of. Have this. you known it as the Sergeant Pepper mural? Not or necessarily, as because like SLC Pepper mural. Neither. I don't even. I, I would bet you the first time I saw it, I did not register it probably as being like a Sergeant. Like a Beatles thing. Yeah, because I don't. I don't know shit about the Beatles. Cool. Good. Thank yeah. God. <laughs> Just kidding. We love Beatles fans in this house. Yeah. Go team Beatles. <laughs> Did you ever take a photo in front of it? I think we need to have a two-shot minimum for doing the podcast. <laughs> I wish I had had that other one before I did mine. Well, technically, we did do two shots because there was one shot before we started and then the drink, but we did sip on that pretty slowly. Yeah, that's true. Um, did you ever take a photo in front of it? Do you know people who took photos in front of it? No, I've never done that. I wouldn't do that. Okay. What did you think of people who did, though? I don't have any problem with it. I think they should be in jail. <laughs> but... That's fine. What do you think? Um, I mean, okay, so when I moved to Salt Lake in 2011, my breadth of music taste was did include the Beatles. It also included The Doors. and I'm like, not sure how many Beatles songs I could name. Hey Jude, mm-hmm. Strawberry Fields. Yeah, because that sushi roll is always super good. Don't know what you're talking about. Um, uh... Sergeant Peppers, <laughs> maybe. Um, hey there, Delilah. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Keep moving. Okay. Well, yeah. So I did move here with just kind of like that that kit of indie girl listens to bands, you know. Um, Are the Beatles indie? No, but you know what I mean. Like I just I was very really basic, don't. very basic. But it's also like. So I thought the yeah, so I thought the mural was pretty fucking cool. I was I was <laughs> if I had the chance to take a photo in front of it, I would, but nobody would take This is like nineteen year old Bianca. Nineteen year old me, yeah. I had cool. I had a braid in my hair with feathers attached to it and a shaved side no, of my really? head. Oh yeah, it was rough. Two thousand eleven? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, my god. That was me. Okay. Um All right. It, yeah, it, this was also during the time like Walmart and Target started like repopularizing the Beatles as far as like merchandise and stuff. So it was pretty cringy to like uh, for no, you know, I don't know. It was it was like like you get the Abbey Road. There's another one. You get the Abbey Road <laughs> like poster. 
yeah. Resur- resurgence. I would have. Yeah. 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 And then like the shirt that just had the Beatles in like three different ways, the same font and all that. And hmm. or the or the the four of them. And then it says, let it be. There's another one. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. I love let it be. Actually. <laughs> let it be. So, um, let I want to hold your hand is my favorite one. What? I want to hold your hand. Oh, yeah. I want to hold your hand. Yeah. yeah. There's some good, there's some bangers you could say. Are they, has it been a hundred years? Are they in the public domain? Yeah, I don't <laughs> think so. Maybe that was. It's the 60s, right? Yeah. So... I really don't know. <laughs> so. I'll be honest with you. I have a second question for you. How okay. long, well, I guess this doesn't apply because you didn't even acknowledge it as a Beatles cover but did you did you ever realize that the mural isn't actually a recreation of the Beatles Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club band album cover so I think a lot of people look at this and they're like oh my god it's the, it's the cover of this this album that's super popular that is, okay that is my I, I guess yes I see it and I'm like I'm pretty sure that that's a Beatles album cover yes I'm so get some coffee I didn't realize that it wasn't, I mean, it was a recreation of it, but it was completely, like, restructured. It's, like, expanded, and it's riffing on it. It's riffing on it. Um, I And I didn't realize that until I was doing research on it, because I was, I was like, I remember. I knew that. For reasons that I'm going to explain later, that I remember my, our boss, or my former boss, your current boss, Angela Brown, telling me the story about this mural and how the person who created it was super cool. Didn't remember why. So I thought that's why it would be a good story to tell. So who is Jan Haworth? I'd like to know. (laughs) It's time. Yeah, let's get there. Um, She's known to be a feminist British American pop artist and is best for co-creating the actual cover of the 1967 Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club band album cover so she was the one who actually made that cover okay she co-created it with her unexpected (laughs) yeah you think yeah that you're surprised that the person who did the mural was the one who did the actual cover yeah i wouldn't expect someone to have interest in being i'd like to know more keep going yeah so she actually co-created it with her husband at the time peter blake and yeah i know i want to know why but no one will tell me single (laughs) (laughs) i I didn't check um so it's funny because she's actually from hollywood and moved to london where she studied art history at the court old courts old say that in court old court old institute of art court old court old court Oh, you're right. Say that. <laughs> I was so confident I wouldn't get it through. And she studied studio art at the Slade School of Fine Art in London. So she's Slade she's, School. She went to school there, but is known is from California, Hollywood, California, daughter of a couple of artists, and but is known as a British pop art artist, which is interesting because like that's where she became famous, but it's not where she's from fake just kidding she's awesome i'm really excited to get into Still alive it. so yes Single? um she is um so what is she known for what has she done and why did she get picked for this album cover picked so, by whom who i'm gonna get into it okay 
<laughs> the Beatles, I guess. Parker at dinner tonight was asking me a lot of these types of questions where it's like, what's on this chicken? And then I'm just like, did you eat the chicken? And you're like, yeah. And it was good. And I'm like, does it, it's, it's amino or it was coconut aminos. And then you're like, you put that on the chicken. And I'm just like, why are you doing this to me just right having now? Conversation, just like babe. eat the fucking food. And then, and then what you. was the other thing you asked? Remember, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day. Like <laughs> teeth grinding, nails on chalkboard questions. Oh, I'm so sorry for taking Some... an interest in your <laughs> hobbies. I'm making dinner. I just, I just <laughs> get on with it. Okay. Um. So she's actually known for her sewn and stuffed soft sculptures. For example, what her. The hell is that? So, for example, her <laughs> Shirley Temple and Mae West dummies. So she like kind of made. Like stuffed sculptures, like a thing, as opposed to like, I, I didn't know that was previously people would look at it and be like, "That's just like a teddy bear or whatever." But Are you she, talking taxidermy? No, she. I guess taxidermy. Shelley could be Temple taxidermy. Shirley Temple taxidermy. Shirley. I guess like, taxidermy could be seen as like sculpture art, but I yeah. Why not? So she liked to reference Hollywood and pop culture in her work just based off of her background, her upbringing, and how she kind of just fell into what interested her in as far as communicating messages. Mm. So why was she so influential in the 60s? Her whole thing was feminism, <laughs> which is her whole thing. great. And at the time... <laughs> There weren't many women taking up space in the art world, as you may assume. And according to my sources, which some of it was Wikipedia, um, her and Pauline Bodie were the only two female artists taking up space within the British pop art movement, which is ridiculous because for me, there was only two women, which I just think that's not true because I'm sure that. I'm sure there was, like, a lot of people of color in that that's just, like, not being yeah, acknowledged. I'm sure that's, like, a matter of, like, what got recorded. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure she deserved it, but it's just, like, it makes me angry to see. But, like, oh, there, yeah, the 60s, we had such, pop art was, like, such a big deal, but only two women were involved. It's, like, okay. Yeah. Like, that's ridiculous. Who got canonized, really. Yeah. yeah. All right. So um, I like this quote of hers uh, after she, when she's talking about making that album cover. She just says, a white boy band isn't for all. <laughs> Wait, what? Say all that again? Yeah, after she made the cover for the Beatles, she said, a white boy band isn't for all. She didn't even like, like their music. <laughs> Did they ask her to make it? Was it she commissioned or something? So her opportunity to create the cover, album cover, for the Beatles, came when the gallery owner, Robert Frazier, suggested it to the band. You know, everybody's in the scene together. They're, They're all... popular at this point, I yeah. assume. Absolutely. After, okay. yeah, as, as soon as Sgt. Pepper came out, yeah. Beatlemania. What made them popular? They're so cute. Are you kidding me? Like, what album? Uh, their first one. <laughs> well, what's that? I don't know. I Beatles? Can't... The Beatles. I think it was just the Beatles. Oh. Yeah. Um... The idea was to have the band dressed in their northern brass band uniforms for an official imaginary ceremony at a park surrounded by a crowd of eclectic characters. So John, Paul, and George, I don't know why Ringo wasn't brought into this conversation about the cover, but only those three got together with Frazier, Haworth, and her ex-husband, Blake, 
to make a list of the characters that they would want in the crowd. They approached it more like I'm a... talking about the album art right now. Uh, yeah, I'm talking about the album art. They approached it more like a collage by pasting life-size black and white photos of all the characters onto a hardboard that Har- Harworth then hand-tinted. You'll notice some of Harworth's cloth dummies also made it onto the cover. I wonder I if she's responsible that. for Muppets. No. You wonder? No. That's, you, didn't, you, that's, don't, you don't know? I don't think so. I don't Muppets I think are Jim a derivative. Jim responsible for yeah. Muppets. I'm sorry, Jim. <laughs> His name's on the tin and everything. <laughs> so she was responsible for the band's name also being spelled out in the flower bed, which is like super iconic. Mm. So I'm going to pull up that cover and I want you to describe it. From memory? From what I'm going to show you. Okay. Yeah, I can describe what I can see. You got it, boss. Seen any movies? Okay. Um, so, yeah, in the foreground, we've got um, the word Beatles spelled out in flowers on a flower bed. And um, then there's a bass drum. Parker looks at me because I'm not. <laughs> They know what instruments are named. And it says, on the bass drum, it says, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And then behind them is a huge crowd of people, presumably the Beatles. Um, and then a bunch Do of... Do you know how many people are in the Beatles? Um, I know there's uh, um, Paul McCartney mm-hmm. and Ringo, George, mm-hmm. and... George huh? Mm-hmm. And Jared. Jared Lennon, everybody. Is wow. that really his name? No, oh. it's John Lennon. John Lennon. He's like the most... Right, yeah. He's the one who was shot, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, then there's a huge crowd behind him. Now describe what the mural looks like. So the mural has on the bottom written on brick, it says SLC Pepper. And then there is a bass Would you drum. say it's kind of in the same style as the Beatles flower bed? Not really. Okay. I mean, it's all caps. It's capitalized. <laughs> um, it's not flowers. Um, and then there's a bass drum with nothing written on it. And there are four figures who are wearing kind of nondescript jacket. I mean, it looks like what I, I think that what they look like on that album. But then there's what appears to be a whole medley of of people um, that seem like I'm seeing a Martin Luther King. I'm seeing some historical figures. I'm also seeing a woman who looks like she's being crucified at the back. There's quite a lot going on, more than anyone should be expected to describe. <laughs> All right. So... Why did she make this mural? She made the cover, and then, what, 2004 comes along, and she wants to make a mural. So she wanted to create a version of this iconic cover to be an actual equitable representation of current society. She says, the original album cover, famous though as it is, is an icon ready for the iconoclast. We will be turning the original inside out ethnic and gender balancing, and evaluating for contemporary relevance. She... There's that word again. (laughs) I know, her and Yumoka should work together. Um, So she was like, 
at the time in the 60s, she was hired to do this thing that she wasn't even like that excited about. She wasn't even into boy bands or anything like that. She was just like, cool, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And so now she's kind of reflecting on it and is still working as an artist. And it's like, let's redo this in a more honest and equitable and more effective way. Mm -hmm. Effective. So she worked with 30 local, national, and international artists to create the stencil graffiti mural. The group is supposed to depict the heroes and heroines of the 21st century. Mm. So who is in the mural? Um, Arthur King. Among more than 100 people included in SLC Pepper are Alice, Alice Walker, Annie Lennox, Banksy's Rap, B.B. King, Beastie's Beastie Boys, Benicio Del Toro, Billie Holiday, Bjork, Bob Marley, David Hockney, Frank Zappa, Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres, really? Tom York's, Tom Waits, Nelson Mandela, Martha Luther King Jr., Maya Angelou, Jackie Robinson, Mother Jones, Sojourner Truth, Sylvia Plath, Tony Kushner, Jane Goodall, etc., etc. And the rest. Felix the Cat. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, so the Dalai Lama, David Bowie. So, yeah. So she just like reinvented this really iconic cover that probably no one thinks about a woman making, you know, uh-huh. um, and puts it up in Salt Lake for everyone to see. She's kind of redoing her work, right? Reinventing, retelling the past. Mm-hmm. So why is this in Salt Lake City? If this is such an important like recreation of history, why is it here? Why is it in 2004? Why was that made? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's simple. She lives and works here. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, and she says that if she didn't become an artist, she would have become a geologist. She loves diverse landscapes and is why she moved to Utah in 1997. That's yeah. from Utah Stories. Got some good geology here. Mm-hmm. So most recently, she worked on creating a Utah-centric piece to commemorate the anniversary of women's suffrage. This is actually why Angela assigned me to like look into this because we were approaching that um, the anniversary and we wanted to write a story about this because it was... Like, it's a cool background. It's a cool story. So it was this mural is kind of in the same style of the other mural. And it's it was unveiled in August of 2020 at the Dinwoody building on oh. 27 West and 100 South. Uh, Zion's Bank provided funding for this, I guess. And Thank it you. honored 200 Utah women. So that's a lot of Utah women, yeah. you know. Um she says, we can't yet sit down and enjoy the spoils of our marches and the Me Too movement. She says, she said it. The needle is moving and it is high time that we heard other voices. So fun fact, after completing this and after she unveiled this, people complained that there weren't enough Republican women represented. This is in the Pepper, SLC Pepper? Or no, the this new is one the new one. Okay. The woman's suffrage one. Not enough uh, Republican women? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, the Sar- Sal- this is from the Salt Lake Tribune. Hogwarts said that they did not look at political affiliation when creating the mural, but mm-hmm. rather worked 
to include a wide range of work fields. Look, Republican women just aren't contributing as much as, as liberal women. <laughs> Maybe not, but I, I just, <laughs> I just can't believe they got mad about that. It's just like, shut up, you know? <laughs> um, okay, so. Do they suggest it, some Republican women? They uh, think just wait. Be? So include they wanted to okay. So Hogwarts was like we wanted to include a wide range of work fields, diversity and ethnicity, countries of origin, economic diversity and religious diversity. The women included were selected through a democratic process, and the creators accepted suggestions in order to cover a wide spectrum. So two faces were also purposely left blank so that people could imagine their own selections in in the piece. <laughs> so it's like Republican women look at there you know there's a couple empty spots for you so they added 30 more people after they were failing Mm -hmm. yeah more or less thank god yeah so that is the short but interesting history of that mural and why it's actually like a huge part of history and art history yeah i never would have guessed any of that i certainly would never have guessed the original connection yeah I know, it's just cool that she made the original cover and everything. Kind of surprised that someone hasn't, like, painted over it or built something there. Hmm. As well. I was probably being protected. I would hope. Yeah. We should protect it. I think it has, like, a rope in front of it Mm. for people not to get too close. There's Johnny Nobark. If no one's got your back rope, Scott, your back. (laughs) Wow. Well, I never would have guessed any of that. That's actually some... It's cool that there was a recent mural by her, too. Yeah. Where is that located? I... I have the address written down. 250 South, 400 West. No, where is the new one located? Miss, I have the... I do have the address. Of the new one? Yes, I do. See it. See it. Uh, 37 West, 100 South. Okay. Let's go. We should go look at both. Yeah. And take photos. Mm-hmm. Oh, that should photo. be the episode photo. Yep. We'll take a photo in front of Yumoka. We'll take one in front of the mural. When are we going to do that? <sighs> I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm so tired. Well, okay. So that is our episode for today. Yeah, it's episode two. Cemeteries. Oh my god, really? Yeah, we're going to get really October. spooky, scary. Oh my god, I'm kind of I don't know if a cemetery should be like it, you know, it should be more kind of just like people who've died. Sure. We can, take, where a, they are we can now. take a broad approach to this <laughs> yeah, topic. Just like death. and Yeah, death. We'll say death. Decay. Local death. <laughs> Local death. Um, so if you have anything, <laughs> the one after that is best pranks in Salt Lake City. <laughs> so, so if you have anything for either of those, I think that would be fun. Um, and yeah, so I do want to talk about a few events that are coming up that are arts related. Since we are doing an arts related episode, I thought it would be useful to plug a couple of events. So on September 29th, Lou Wee is opening the show my soul desires at material contemporary in salt lake city make sure to follow material contemporary on instagram to keep up with all of their events 
Also, drumroll please, Mika, the Maciso Institute of Culture and Arts, the uh, nonprofit that I am co-chair of along with Odacio Rodriguez, is we're opening up a gallery October 21st. Oh my God. Yeah, we're opening up a gallery October 21st, and it's going to be so fun. The event's going to be from 6 to 10. All sorts of... Tricks and treats happening. <laughs> so knock your socks off. So knock your socks off. Um, at the gateway, everybody. At the gateway, 95. We're back. We're so back. 95 South Rio Grande Street. Um, please make it. I'll remind everybody about it next week as well. Mm-hmm. Next show. And then last. Say the word Bianca now to receive free text updates. <laughs> last but not least, uh, the I'm also opening a show at Material Contemporary. November 11th with Kelly Tapia Tuning, who is an amazing textile artist. And I'm very um, lucky and happy to be sharing some space with her for our grand opening show called Sangre Mia. So those are the big dates coming up. Mm. Yeah. Congratulations. Congratulations, Salt Lake City. More art history to be had. Yeah. We're, We're making it. First we tell it, then we make it. And then we break it. Oh, wow. Wow. Is your recording still going? Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. All right. Thank you for listening to Local Motor Podcast. And I finally got on our Twitter. So you can follow our Twitter at local underscore motive underscore. And then Instagram, Local Motor Podcast. And website, Local Motor Podcast dot com. So make sure to send in your ideas and your stories. And we'd love to share them. Yeah. Please send us in. All right. Have a great Friday, everybody. Yeah, thank you, everybody.